So Grant, first of all, thank you very much for being with us once again. Um, for those audience members who don't know you, would you mind uh, just giving a quick introduction into your prof professional journey and what you do at the moment? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Graham McDonald. I'm Chief Data Officer at TempCover. Uh, I've been at TempCover for just over a year, um, and they're a sort of small um, insurance broker that specialise in uh, insurance, vehicle insurance for anywhere between one hour and 28 days, um, which is an amazing product, really, um, that you can do that. And it's very quick and easy. Um, but before that, I probably spent, um, you know, a large part of my career in data analytics um, in financial services. So everything from, um, you know, variety of insurance products um, and financial services, loans, credit cards, etc. Um, I did have about five years out where I worked actually for um, sort of Europe's largest taxi company, uh, pre pre Uber, um, that was quite different. You know, um, it's nice to get out of the industry for a while. But actually, you know, um, mid pandemic, I did decide to go back to insurance. That was a considered probably a safe place to to go. So yeah, really um, uh, a career data person, I'd say. Mm. Oh, I will want to find out about uh, you know the highlights of that career and maybe some more stories as well. But before we get into that, I found that a good opening question in these interviews, a very provocative question, if you will, is uh, about data drivenness. So we hear data drivenness being thrown around, data driven organization, all that stuff, uh, and it's really hyped up. It's kind of like a trending topic, but we find that often uh, the me it's devoid of meaning, right? So from your perspective as an experienced professional, what does it mean to be a data-driven organization? What does it mean to be data-driven in general? The the very essence of data-drivenness, how would you define that? I, really good question and um, yeah, good place to start. <laughs> I think, um, you know, if I think back to my uh, analytical roots, um, you know, the way I'd approach this normally and, and saying I've, I've done this on... Um, when recruiting people is you might say, well, I'd actually I'll, I'll, I'll create a, a sort of, you know, a, a scoring table of the things that I think um, indicate that you're data driven and you maybe score yourself against those and then you can pay yourself every year. And I used to do this in in uh, in previous teams. It may, maybe we didn't call it data driven. Maybe we called it something else. But so I suppose for me in terms of data driven and, and it's um, it is quite interesting because when I when I joined TempCover and when they asked me to join them, they were saying, actually, we want to we want to use more of our data. We want to monetize our data uh, and we want to be data driven and make decisions on data. And you sort of think, actually, that's all the things that say you're data driven. Um, when I first met the um, the board, um, I thought, actually, they're very numerate and they make decisions on numbers. Um, but that isn't necessarily the same as making decisions based on data. Mm -hmm. And you know, people outside the profession might go, what are you talking about? Data and numbers are the same thing. And it's like, well, they're not really because data is the thing behind the numbers. Um, and then, of course, beyond that is then the interpretation of the numbers and the data uh, to tell a story and to explain, well, it, it's it's 5% higher, but actually, um, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or is that just a, just a, an okay thing? And I think what I found is that the, the data bit they were missing was things like, um, you know, they'd make a decision on some numbers after two hours of uh, of a test running. And I'd say, no, no, it's Monday. Monday's always skewed and you're comparing it with Friday. You know, mm -hmm. you're, a, you're a business where things are different between different days of the week. And, I, and I, you know, I've come across this in other organisations. So the data bit is saying, actually, have we got the right data to make that decision? And is that data 
um, easily and freely available. So I think, you know, constituent parts of being data driven is actually having um, data freely, easily available. People talk about, you know, not having it in silos. You've got to go off and hunt down bits of data. Oh, I, I've only got this bit and so-and-so's got that bit in order to work out the answer to a question. And the question might have been as simple as, you know, are we trading better or worse? Uh, is our retention higher or lower? You know, just at, a, at an executive level, they think that's a really simple question that should be really simple to answer. And data professionals are in some organisations run around trying to work out how to answer that because actually they don't even have the data in the right place. So mm -hmm. data driven for me is about having data in the right place. Um, it's about having the people who understand the data and can turn that then into some sort of, you know, numbers. Uh, and from those numbers, turning that into a story and interpretation. And one of the things I used to say to my um, to my data analyst teams, uh, and, and we had these sort of group that we call insight professionals who were, who were very capable of getting data, manipulating data, analyzing, building models, and then playing it back to a layman. And actually, that's quite a hard, that's quite a hard thing to do. And there aren't very many people who can do that, those sort of skills. Um, but actually, um, they still will remember the question they were posed. Was it a good question they were posed? You know, I mm. think sometimes we get some really bad questions. Mm. Um, again, I think that plays into my data driven. It says actually um, getting, you know, we used to talk about it in Addison Lee and I actually used to write, um, we had a very modern funky office and you could write on the walls. Um, well, sorry, you could write on certain walls um, <laughs> and obviously make sure you wrote, wrote on the right walls. Um, and in the wall in our area, we used to have a sort of this statement and I found it actually in one of my pictures the other day when I was looking back and it was about, um, it's big, big, bold print saying about, you know, um, asking, um, asking the right questions, setting a hypothesis, um, and then getting, get, going and getting some data, then interpreting that and answering the hypothesis. Yeah. And, I, and it finished with anything else you ask for is just another report. And what I mean by that is if you don't formulate a good enough question up front, then you just end up with another report, another report, another report. It doesn't tell you anything because no one has actually put interpretation on top of that. So I think all this combines into this data driven. It says, well, um, and I haven't tried to do it recently in, in temp cover to say, how are we scoring in those various categories? You know, do I think we've improved? I definitely think we've improved. And the comments from the other board members says we've definitely improved. Um, we're making decisions on data you know, we do sometimes lapse into our old ways of going, oh, this test has been running for two hours, it's 10% up, let's put it live. And I'm going, well, how, hang on a minute, you know, um, it's only been live a few hours and then we might let it run for a few days and it, and it settles back down and you go, do you know what, it's only marginally up. Actually, that's not mm -hmm. good enough. And we and we understand, and that, that to me is where the data bit plays in, that you had a better understanding of, of the data not just someone producing two numbers and saying this number's higher than that number, therefore it's good. You've made your decision, move on. Mm, very interesting. So I have a bunch of questions uh, based on this. One would be that how do you see data drivenness now in organizations outside of the data function? Is it trending? Um, uh, how important people think it is? How can they measure it? You know, and I will have a few follow-up questions uh, from that, but, but how, how do you think think that is? I, I think it's a really hard one. I think um, it, and, and this is why it's, I think, hard for data professionals because they tend to be, um, uh, it's all, a, for them, it is all about measuring things which are physical and real. And mm -hmm. actually some of it is is a bit emotional and it feels like we're more data-driven. 
Um, and therefore, how do you how do you score yourself, rate yourself, um, whether it's um, and, and I think this will depend in um, different parts of the organization. You know, does an HR function think they are data driven? Do they think they're using data to the best possible? You know, probably a lot of HR functions. You know, I, I talk to sort of HR professionals say they don't really feel they're using data at all. They process and create lots of data and it's in an HR system. But they never go and analyze the sickness levels or the, the, the um, you know, uh, reasons for leaving and all that type of data that they actually collect. They're so busy just processing transactional type activity. So I, I have to be honest, I think it's a really, really tough one. Um, and I think there are, you know, there are people out there that will profess that you can you know, come up with some sort of matrix and scoring and score yourself. I think for me, the important thing in an organization is, you know, come up with something you think is a, a good set of metrics um, score yourself, but then six months, a year later, score yourself and 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 sort of, you know, think, oh, yeah, we have improved or maybe we haven't improved in certain areas. And you can probably subjectively justify that objective. Mm, that but I think sense. back to your back to a bit of your question, which is, you know, if you're outside of the data team, well, um, if you're trying to break down silos and be in a collaborative way, perhaps we shouldn't. You know, it's like this talk about people talk about the business. I've been in an organization where everybody goes, we need to ask the business. I go, who is the business? We are all the business, right? It's like, you know, the first time I went to Scotland with my parents, and there was a sign saying the North. And you keep seeing a sign for the North until eventually you get to somewhere about 50 miles north of, Car- of, of Carlisle. There's no sign saying the North, right? So are you in the North? Don't know. So the business is almost a philosophical question. <laughs> we are all the business. We should all be inputting. And then, because well, it's, it's about decision makers. Well, okay, you know, I try to to, to train and enthuse into my analyst team. Don't sit on the fence. I used to. It's probably a bit unfair. You know, I don't want to get to politics. You know, don't talk about religion and politics in podcasts. But it's a bit like being a sort of you know a liberal where you go, well, you know, I sit on the fence. It could be this. Could be that. You know. No, you need to put yourself out there and say, I think the data suggests this. Mm. And, you you know, people won't shoot you down because you've te- had an opinion. They're more likely to go, well, actually, I think I think it's telling us that. And that's and because of this. And you can have much more of a sort of conversation about what you're seeing in the data and the numbers versus what somebody else may be in marketing or in finance. And you both learn from it. And more often now I get people coming to me say, I've looked at that and I think I think it's because of this and, and that's because this metric's gone up. And that to me is a sign that people become more um, data literate, that they are not just answering the really simple questions themselves from, you know, a big part of data literacy, I think, is improving the availability of data in a safe way. Um, you know, I know I know ThoughtSpot currently hates dashboards. Let's, you know, they think dashboards are dead. Actually, what they said was, I think, fixed dashboards are dead actually if you've got some really good real-time self-serve you know um that you um uh, can can play around with adjust and use yourself that's not dead that is definitely you know here and now and allows people outside of the data domain to answer their own questions and the level of questions they can answer are getting i, I think are getting um better and better as li- as literacy improves i think if you go somewhere where they're not very data literate they just see the data team as a service team they put in a request a bit like putting a request into it for a new laptop and i wait two weeks and then they come back to me that if you want to operate like that then you know go back to the dark ages and you'll have a data team of people who don't want to work that way and will probably leave you 
Mm, very good. I actually want to what you mentioned about being courageous about you know, making a stand and also being open to learning. You know what? I'm going to ask, ask those questions right now because this is something that came up multiple times in previous interviews and it was almost surprising to me even though it makes sense. So we're trying to even lock down now on the cardinal virtues of the, of the uh, data analytics transformation leader. Right. I think it's a I think it's a it's a noble pursuit. Yeah. So uh, something that really comes up is uh, courage and humility. Right. So can you just maybe speak to this a little bit of how important do you think those qualities are for a leader? And also from your perspective as a professional with such extensive experience, how important do you think that is to demonstrate those values, principles and virtues, essentially? Uh, I wouldn't disagree with them. I think there are a number of of, of you know, virtues and skills that the senior data leader needs in an organization. Um, I think the the proportion that you need at any one time depends on uh, the the organization, the industry, the maturity, probably more than anything else of that organization in its, in its use of data. Um, so if you're going in somewhere that is real greenfield, um, you probably need, you know, a slightly different set of those or, or to use a set, slightly different set of those skills than you would do if you were going somewhere that's actually very well established, been using data for many, many years. Um, they're reasonably data literate. They just need a bit of a, you know, a, 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 a few of the plates are wobbling, so they need a bit more spinning. It's like, you know, it's slightly different. Um, the problem with that is that um, if you carry on searching for the unicorn that has all of those skills available in their toolbox to call upon at any moment, um, they don't exist, right? So in reality, you know, people like me are very good at going into companies, perhaps, and doing what I would call is maybe the little T of data transformation mm. and the BAU of running of data teams. Um, the big T of data, of data transformation, they, they're, they're really big stuff. I mean, if I take an example like, um, you know, um, Peter Jackson went to legal in general, uh, you know, pretty big monolithic, um, you know, insurer, been around hundreds of years. You know, he's trying to move the dial of a massive organization in their in their sort of data literacy. Um, I would say it doesn't excite, probably scares me more than excites me. So probably, you know, it's not my thing. You know, me arriving at, um, you know, when I was at, at um, you know, Addison Lee or I was at Temp Cover, my previous, you know, my current role, it was more of a, a small T and a lot of BAU. And actually that quite excites me because I get quickly into, um, I quickly get into doing stuff, um, mm -hmm. you know, not just doing the, the, the transformation and talking to people and, and moving the dial, um, but it's not the, the big T, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it comes back to is, yeah, you know, courage and humility, but there's also the whole, you know, stakeholder management, people management, um, you know, actually being there and having done it yourself. You know, we talked about earlier about, you know, introduction and I am a sort of career data person. I started in data um, I started in algorithms before we had computers, really. That's how old I am. Um, and, you know, now um, it's a lot easier to do your job because of the amount of computing power. Despite saying we've got really loads and loads of data, actually, the computing power is so much, like 100 times more than it was when I started in. in um, you know, I had to share a computer with a colleague. We had to, like, we had timeshare. We had, a, you know, three hours each on the computer. That's how, that's how it was back in 1990, I'm afraid. Wow, wow, that's a different world, and um, th that's actually a good point. And you know, if you're more like a shaker and a mover, like you are, then 
it's you know a good idea to choose a gig that actually resonates with uh, uh, you know with you because if you went to legal in general it's a great organization you might uh, that that's a whole different whole different task a whole different mission would you actually elaborate a little bit on this because you mentioned it last time we spoke and I found it very intriguing and I haven't heard anyone else point out the same before the difference between small T B A U and big T you know, can yeah. you speak to that a little bit yeah so I suppose um, so I suppose I see uh, the big T transformation and that, that can be in the in the data sphere. It can be in the digital sphere. Um, it can be um, uh, it can be across your organization. So I suppose I see the, the big T of, of, of data transformation often associated with a much bigger corporate transformation that's going on. Mm-hmm. And that often happens when the company is you know, perhaps being taken over, new leadership, uh, you know, a strategic wake up moment that says, like we need to like digitalize like some companies did in the pandemic. Oh my God, we really need to go proper digital. Um, and they needed to do a big data transformation. They needed to bring data sources together and people, but they were doing other related things in, in terms of transformation elsewhere in the organization. Um, I'd also say, you know, what, you know, hop back to sort of, you know, Peter at Legal and General, I'd say that's a big T transformation with data. Mm-hmm. I think what I've done and, you know, I'd say, when I arrived at um, when I arrived at Addison Lee, I'd been at the AA for a number of years, and I'd done a number of uh, small T's and big T's, you know, both in data and in terms of other transformations in that time. But I think Addison Lee one for me was a, a small T, and the characteristics were um, they had something, um, they had some good people, they just hadn't really sorted it out and planned and organised it that well, and they needed a bit of order uh, and you know getting getting consistency so that they didn't have. The, the the same person in the same team producing two reports on the same day that had um, different values for the same the same field you can't do that mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's just bonkers but that's not big transformation that's just that's a little transformation mm-hmm. and actually moving that forward quickly getting that consistency getting that the, the team working together getting you know sort of processes and procedures in place was um, to me that's the small T because and the reason I would call it small T is because it didn't have to involve um, transformation elsewhere in the organization necessarily now we we were doing some other transformations but I could sort of do my own data transformation um, I don't quite say in, in isolation but within the team in terms of our um, people and processes mm-hmm. it's more localized in a way yeah and then the BAU bit I think I think again you know we you sort of touched upon it earlier and I think when organizations are going out looking for a senior data leader, whether it's a head of data, a CDO, CDAO, um, director of data or whatever it is, that's going to be your most senior data leader. Um, I think they have to be aware that um, when the big T or the little T is finished, you know, when it may be finished at some point in terms of you may just say there's no more budget after a certain point, you do need to um, carry on running it. And, you know, I, I spent 17 years at the AA. I loved it. I loved the people. Um, I was never finished. You know, I talk about this in, um, you know, in, in, in um, other conversations about data as a journey, not a destination. So you, you've got waypoints on the way and, you, and you're constantly sort of you, you're never going to have perfect data because the company will change. We'll launch new products. Um, new tools will come. It, it is a journey. Just accept that. And you're going to have these points on, in, along the way where you're constantly trying to improve the data team's capability and the company's capability to, to, to use data, I suppose. And I suppose the. the um, it comes back to when companies are recruiting that senior leader, they do need to appreciate, they go out with the tick list and they've got 30 things 
And we all sit there and go and have a good laugh on social media about it. Go, if you see what company X, what they want, they want the full list. It doesn't exist. And you see someone turn up and maybe hopefully they've worked out. We need this type of leader for now. And that person will either morph into this type of leader going forward to run the BAU type function um, or, or we accept there'll be a different leader. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Uh, from the perspective of a data leader, so what about the the commonalities and the differences in terms of the challenge that it poses um, uh, to the data leader? So let's say big T, small T, BAU. I imagine that there are a lot of things that are just and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, so you tell me. Uh, maybe there are some foundational principles that you just need to adhere to, you know, wherever you are. And then also there are some differences, you know, in terms of approach. Would you would you maybe speak to this a little bit, like the differences and the commonalities in terms of the challenges that these different stages of transformations pose to the data leader? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, yeah the, the challenges are different depending on, the type of leader. So, for example, you know, as I said earlier, you know, me trying to do a big transformation in a big organization would be a challenge because although I've done it before the AI, I didn't say I didn't enjoy it, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of political things that are nothing to do with what what is the what is the the right thing to do in the long term, but it's the right thing to do in the short term. And I remember somebody saying to me, they said, uh, said to me, said, Graham, um, you're always right. You're just not right at the time. And what he meant was, you know, you are right. That is the right thing we should do in the future. We should go and sort that out. We should go and invest in that little tool. We should go and buy some more compute power. But actually right now, where the business is right now in our decision process and our strategic journey, we should do this. And actually as a leader, understanding that and the commercial reality of what's going on outside, which which is why I think more and more senior data leaders need to be in those um you know, board level position. So they have that appreciation of what else is going on in your organization. Okay, now that's, that's very insightful. And um, let's just circle back a little bit to the whole question of data literacy. Obviously, it's a very hot topic, right? So first of all, you already uh, uh, spoke about this a little bit, but if we could unpack it uh, more, that would be useful. And then I will have some follow-up questions about the whole journey of uh, data-drivenness. But how would you define data literacy? When would you say that, okay, this organization is, is you know, has, a, has a, a, a decent, adequate, or even good level of data literacy? How would you define that? Uh, I suppose ultimately you, um, there's a, there is a danger that organizations judge themselves on purely what the, the, the end stakeholder thinks. So I've had, I've had, uh, I've been asked to speak to some people at organizations who've perhaps recently joined and they put, you know, asked to speak to me about my sort of, um, thoughts and what they've observed. And they've observed in a short period of time, perhaps 30 days, 60 days, uh, that um, they can't get reports, they get inconsistent reports, um, it takes too long to do analysis, they're not doing AI, and all these type of things. And I would say sometimes maybe they haven't they haven't actually asked the right people the right mm-hmm. questions. Um, or maybe actually it's true that organisation is is not in a great place and, that, and they have got that proliferation. But sometimes it, it takes sometimes quite a while to 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 work out where all those things are and but i suppose that's the downside of saying you're not very data literate because actually if it does take quite a long time to work out what's what and where where to go then you're not very data literate are you in today's in today's world you should be able to put your finger 
arguably on you know it's not going to be 95 percent of data because you are um we're operating in a real world where things are changing so like if you take the pandemic the day after boris said shut the shut the uk down mm-hmm. lots of people i was you know in contact with were either doing nothing paralyzed didn't, you know the business had dropped uh, that no one was asking them to do anything and other places you know where i was we, that was a it wasn't panic as such but we were trying to work out what's going on, what's likely to happen. Um, you know, how are we going to su- support the, the 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 UK and London in particular with you know um, you know with um, private transfer, etc. Um, and analysis requests were sort of coming out of our ears, I suppose, to, to some extent within a few days. Um, and I think that that's quite a hard world for people to to live in and to to, to operate. Um, if you're you know for the organisations that were I would call very data literate. They coped much better in the pandemic. I think the ones who really struggled were not very data literate. And, and you say, well, what does that mean, Graham? Why, why are you saying that you haven't defined what it is? And I suppose they, they couldn't easily answer the new questions. Because mm. answering how many things did we sell mm. yesterday, right? Every company in the land should be able to answer that. Okay, they might have some different answers depending on how you 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 want to sort of filter it. And is it how many, how much, how much money? But actually... Yeah, you know, I know pandemic is what I can say is a one in a hundred year events, but there's been the pandemic, there's been the credit crunch, there's been a number of things in my thirty years in data that says actually there is a significant event every pretty much ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even maybe even every seven or eight years that suddenly you might say, well, I didn't have the data, I didn't have the tools. Actually, you should have sort of got yourself ready, mm-hmm. and that's not just the data team being ready. Actually, the, the people asking the questions and trying to understand what's going to happen next, what's the forecast going to be, et cetera, um, they also have to be a bit better prepared. And so maybe this thing about, well, are you are you data literate? Maybe that ultimately is about how you how you cope with the, the big shocks, not, not just the little shocks and the, the BAU capability, but actually how well you cope with the big shocks to, to you know, to like, you know, sort of world events, I suppose. Mm, that's a great angle because it kind of corresponds. We have also in-house this kind of uh, um, uh, teaching methodology, if you will, which focuses on the four stages of learning. Have you heard about the four stages of learning? The the unconscious incompetence when you don't even know what you don't know. You know it's just completely invisible. Reality does not respond as you expect it to because there's a gap in your knowledge and understanding and awareness. Then the yeah. second stage would be conscious incompetence. You've been exposed to the right information. Okay, you read a book, you heard it from someone, you're still incompetent, but at least you're aware. So there's some visibility. And then the third stage would be conscious competence. You start to practice these things. You start to put it into action. It's kind of clunky. It takes a lot of effort. You know, you're not yeah. really responsive. You can't really ad- uh, like adapt to changing circumstances. But then the final stage, if you can graduate to that stage through regular practice and the right guidance and, and all that stuff, then you become unconsciously competent. When it's just second nature, something unexpected happens, you have the competence to just respond, right? So yeah. that nicely fits into that. My question would be, a uh, big question, I know, so maybe we can uh, uh, break it down, but how do you create that level of, of, of data competence even? You know, we can call it data literacy, but you, what, what you're talking about is really competence, right? Now we have competent people. It's not like a, an academic understanding of what data is, you know, but it's more like I can work with it now. I I, I have this skill. It's elevated to, to a level of skill. So how, how do you implement that in a business? I think, I mean, uh, uh, I think most, you know, the, the big examples I've seen is most have gone for a, you know, sort of like a framework that says these are the things we're going to do to improve the level 
in our in our organization and, and when i and when they say in their organization they mean everywhere mm-hmm. so they mean you know frontline staff you know who might be um you know the um you know um in a, in a banking organization for example that are serving customers at, at, at the front line and, and that's everything about them understanding um their understanding of um maybe the sort of you know top level numbers uh, for the organization but actually maybe you break it down to just so they understand for their um branch you know how many customers come into your branch on a on a day how much money goes in and out of your organization just giving them more more numbers so they assimilate what's what's happening i suppose um, I think the big one that a lot of companies um, are approaching is um, showcasing um, what good data governance and data quality looks like and what happens when you have bad data quality and data and, and bad data governance. Um, because I think it's all very easy to say, yeah, we need to improve our data governance. Right. We've said it. Uh, how are we going to do it? I don't know. Right. Let's go on with something more interesting and let's build a data warehouse or something. Actually, a lot of organizations don't need to collect any more data they just need to be better at using the data that they've already got and you know collecting it in a, in a better quality um, and actually some of the best the best um, improvements in data literacy is ensuring that the people who are at the front line of collecting data so that's your you know call center operatives you know when I was at the AA patrol people were out collecting data right because they were fixing cars and then typing into a computer at the end what they did and I used to spend every year um, me and my team would go out uh, and we'd we'd take it turns, go out with a patrolman for a, for a shift. We'd get to see what it's like at the front front end. We'd get to see what, you know, meet some customers. And we could talk to the patrolman about um, the data he was inputting and why it was important. And actually just, just telling one person why it was important that he didn't just tab through that field, got a light bulb moment. And he'd hopefully tell, you know, or she would tell, you know, five of his friends. And you can create that proliferation in an organization by explaining why things, you know, if things are better, the the, the, the knock-on effect, I suppose. Hmm. And what about this? Um, um, so w- when you look at making this happen, um, from your experience, I mean, what were your bottlenecks in this c- c- kind of, you know, transferring that understanding and really... Uh, making them see what you see, speaking that data language, right? Uh, what were b- the bottlenecks from from your career, but also um, in others? What what have you seen in colleagues, other data leaders? Well, what are the, the common mistakes you think? Um, I think some of them, uh, you know, uh, you know, sometimes for me, it's, it actually was me, so I was the bottleneck. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, I had all these ideas and this sort of you know vision. But I just sometimes didn't have the time to to put it down, to talk to it. Um, and actually what really helped was when you had a bigger team and you had, you know, um, senior leaders in some of those sort of functions that you needed to improve, that actually um, you can enthuse them and you've chosen the right people and they can help build it. So um, it was perhaps, it was, you know, it's back to this thing about, you know, you're, it's a team sport, not an individual and so perhaps maybe bit of a realization a while ago that says I can't just do it on my own. I have to um, get other people to to do it. And what I mean by that is not just do the, the the doing practical bit. I mean the actual go out and evangelize and um, talk about what they're doing. So you know, one of the things we used to do at the AA is we'd frequently go out to ask key stakeholders and talk to them about what their objectives were, what their um, strategy was to fulfill that. 
and it would generate ideas for analysis that we could do that would support them. This wasn't a request from the stakeholders to do this right now, but in six months' time, they want to be able to do this. Oh, actually, right, we need to start thinking about building that type of capability of sourcing that data. You know, I'd much rather be on the front foot of getting stuff ready than constantly reacting to a request, request, request. You know, being mm. reactive in, in any any organization, a team that's reactive and can't has any time to be proactive um, is a frustrating place for anyone to be, whether you're in the team or you're the leader of the team. That's that's not a, not a great place to be. Mm, that's that, that's one of my favorite insights that just keeps coming up in these interviews. And it's something that people just often miss, even, you know, in our entrepreneurial entrepreneurial journey here, this whole idea about not being defensive, reactive, you know, constantly being on your back foot, kind of like taking yeah. the punches in the corner and how the best defense is offense, right? Like actually moving out and being active, being proactive. Um, quick question, because with this, um, I would like to get a little bit more specific because it's such an important topic about asking the right questions. Again, very, very common. So can you uh, give a few examples of who those stakeholders were? Um, in, in, in that example that you uh, that you mentioned. And then I would like to find out about the, the kind of questions that you asked, just so we can get a little bit specific here and give an example to the uh, to the audience. So who were those stakeholders? So I think um, there'd be a range. So I think they, they could be the C-suite. Um, so mm-hmm. it could be the CMO, CFO. Um, more likely, and the reason why this, this occurred was the level just below. So the sort of general manager head offs below that you might find in most organizations is because... Um, often, you know, a company would have a corporate strategy um, and have a business strategy that has maybe elements that are aligned to those different business functions. So whether it's the, the finance function or the marketing function or the sales function, each one of those would have a sort of high level um, strategy and set of objectives. So you can see you say, well, I don't need to go and talk to the CMO and say, what's your objectives and and um, KPIs and everything, because it's sort of like in most companies, it's available to you. Mm-hmm. Certainly if you're a as a senior data leader of the AA, I had access to all that information. I knew what we as a company were heading for. I knew what each of the areas were heading for. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't have is what are their sub-leaders trying to do in order to support that? So we would be going out, um, you know, I'd be sort of saying, right, my head of analytics should go and talk to uh, the head of marketing or the head of um, sales or the head of um, product or whatever it is. Um, but not just, you know, at saying, well, it has to be head off to head off, actually telling talking to other people and and also generating that um, off the back of, well, somebody asked us to do this, we did it. And um, we used to, you know, in, a, in the old world, when um, we used to actually sit in offices and things, and we'd still just send things to each other as emails. Um, and you'd send us a PowerPoint deck and we'd say, let's get, get out of the habit, send, send the answer to the question, um, but say, I'm going to book a session next week to take you through it. Mm. And the reason for that and they might go, well, it's okay, it's fine, I understand it. And you go, no, no, we're just going to run quickly run through it. The reason we pushed for it was because we wanted time in their diary to quickly talk about what we did, but actually to go, is there anything else? You know, what about this? Have you thought about that? And so you you sort of booked half hour, but you technically were using, you know, okay, sometimes you did need to explain it in more depth, but in reality, you were using it as a way of getting into their diary to create our proactive backlog list should we say of stuff or oh, we need to go and look at this wow i love the, the the tactical depth of this you know because uh i like the general attitude of being proactive and and, and seek out these 
conversations. Don't just react. And then I like the general strategic direction of, okay, let's talk to these people. Let's get into their heads in a way that you know, we can see things from their perspective. Yeah, yeah. Let's focus on building those relationships. And then I like this kind of tactical layer below this is, is like, okay, don't just send the PowerPoint. Uh, even when they say that, oh, I, I get it. No, 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 get on that calendar, speak to them and create that connection. Uh, and other like technical segment of this, uh, do you think this changed since the since the pandemic, you know, with face-to-face, uh, uh, people working from home, uh, uh, video conferencing being more prominent, or do you think in big organizations that's the, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's the modus operandi anyways? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think... Um I mean, before, you know, before March 20, we were already, um, uh, you know, as an organization I was at, we were we were already working from home. Um, also, that's not really work from home. We used to work flexibly. Sometimes I was at home. Sometimes mm-hmm. I was at, you know, a hotel. Sometimes I was at parents' place or whatever. You know, you're working, you're working, you're not working at your at your desk in, in the, the London office. And so we had got into a pattern of, you know, you can present and talk to somebody from anywhere. So it could be a one-on-one, it could be a you know one to five, um, and so it, I would say it didn't matter. I think there's still organisations that are still struggling with that a little bit, but the pandemic in a way has helped because I think it's given back to people who are still you know two or three days a week at home, which is still a lot of us. And some people I know are, are saying, being told, actually, do you know what? We don't really want you to go back to the office. No point. Um, people have got back time in their diary from from not travelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the ability for like um, me to present to you over Teams, Zoom, whatever medium you're using, um, is a is a lot easier presenting to a few people, etc. So I think the technology there. Okay, I know the one downside of it is uh, like reading the room is harder because mm-hmm. you can only see a tiny little picture sometimes. You know, even if you've got a massive screen in your office like me. Um, how do you read the room when there's more than about five or six people because their faces disappear? How do you know that you know? Um, you know, Dave, who runs finance, hasn't just dropped off to sleep because uh, you can't you can't really see it. Mm-hmm. So don't, you can't always get the, the the how are they feeling? What's their reaction, as it as it were, when you're talking talking to a subject? Mm, so that's a trade off there. And yeah. um, so basically, when you ask the right questions and you get information from that, so you're creating that asset. Of, of information and, and 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 insight from these people, right? You're also creating these uh, relationships in general, which we always bring this analogy of your messages and and the, the message that you want to get through. You know that that ultimately changes someone's behavior, um, ideally to your favor, right? Uh, that's that's the seed, and then the relationship is the soil in which you're planting that message. Right. So how do you leverage these relationships and how do you leverage that information that you're getting through questions? So let's say you get on the calendar, you explain what needs to be explained. And then you're also asking your questions like what else? You know, what's up? What are the what are the challenges? Uh, How do you make sure in the data team or maybe even if it's just you mainly uh, uh, that you're, you're you're leveraging that you're getting value from that? I mean, how do you debrief that? How do you make sure that these questions don't, and, and insights don't just get lost, but you make them count? I don't know if you if you. Yes, yeah, interesting. I mean, just just before we answer, I just go back to you asking sort of beginning about sort of, you know, asking the right questions. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think you have to be able to formulate that, you know, on the fly. But people talk about the um, they talk about the five whys. Um, so when someone asks you and requests something from you, um, you're supposed to be able to go back and ask why, why. So they respond and say, well, it's because I'm looking at forecasts for this. Why are you doing that? Oh, because I've got to do that. Now, 
I did say, I, did, I usually sort of say, if you get to five whys and haven't got punched by a stakeholder, uh, you know, come on, couple, couple of whys of why do you want that? And, you know, and, you know, I've been doing this for years and I still fall into it where I get a request, I look at it and go, yeah, that's quite easy. We just do this and I answer it. And then they come back and go, that's great. But can you just split it by this and this? Oh, yeah, OK, I can do that. And I go, actually, what are you doing with it? What do you want it for? Mm-hmm. And you answer those few questions and you go, oh, God, if I just ask, if I, you know, I said, even I'm forgetting to go back because it looks so simple. I just do it and, and try and impress upon your team. So I suppose, you know, to answer your 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 question um for me sometimes it's about leading by example mm. you know, people always said oh graham you always lead from the front you know if there was a if there was a battle um you'd be yeah you'd, you'd be straight over the top into battle where you wouldn't be standing there at the back um you know sending the troops there are other data leaders who like to stand at the back and that's not a bad thing because sometimes mm-hmm. you do need the leader at the back telling people where to go you know uh, um you know they always say that you don't you don't get many captains of football teams that are strikers because they're at the front and, and heading towards the other goal. They're not behind. Often they are, you know, often in the midfield or maybe you know centre back because actually they're looking up the field, they're seeing positional play, and they're and they're leading, you know, and and, and sort of you know uh, moving the play around from that perspective. So I think there's a big thing about lead by example. Um, I think the people you tend to recruit into your team, retaining in your own team. Um, tend to then you know sign up to that should we say um, it's a lot harder when you go to an organization you inherit and you don't see those behaviors and you don't see those behaviors changing over time through saying well hang on a minute I'm watching you and you're doing this so I should do that now and it was a good example actually at Addison Lee where somebody said to me um, I see what you do it's really good and you do that and you do nudge theory and I went uh, you spotted it um, and, and it nudge was, yeah. theory yeah yeah so you um you're talking about like how do you yeah how do you make sure you get the um, you know right outcomes sometimes and um, yeah I'd, I'd say I I it was unconscious but I probably do consciously do it now because my secret's going to be out which is that um, you don't go in and say all guns blazing we need this we need this right and if you don't give it to me I'm leaving um, you for a lot of times you need to nudge them in the right direction um, so that will be you know. When there's the opportunity to say to, to, to demonstrate that because you haven't got a, um, a lot of compute power, for example, or storage or whatever it is that's, that's affecting your ability to do the job or not enough people in the team, you just drop it in subtly. Oh, we could have done this, but we just don't have enough time. We could have done that, but we, we ran out of storage. Oh, we couldn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's a little bit nudge and you're sort of making that noise. Um, and then when somebody actually, um, you know, and that that is both in terms of the tools you need in your team to do your job. But also it can be just the messaging of, you know, we, um, you know, we've had some things where we built segmentations, for example, you know, good old segmentations. Um, we've been asked to do them. We built them. And actually, um, you know, we've used them and there's been a change of CMO, for example, and they've come in with their own ideas. And then they came to us and said, oh, we'd like to um, we'd like to do um, segmentation again. Um, and we thought we we're going to do it this way. And we'd sort of go, well, actually, let's let's there's nothing wrong with what we did before and we sort of nudge them towards that and, and by nudge i mean it's just you know you know it's just small incremental um mm-hmm. sort of steps um i'm not saying you, you don't do it all the time but it's for certain things nudge you know is better than like the all guns blazing this is this is mm-hmm. the transformation we need or this is the the big shiny thing we need 
Mm, so almost okay. I'm just locking down on maybe another virtue here, which is patience in a way, right? Because that requires patience, strategic patience, or patient persistence, almost to to deliver that death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, no one would say I'm patient. <laughs> Definitely impatient. But I think you made an interesting point there, which is strategic patience. So actually, mm-hmm. there is this bit that says um, my natural persona is I'm impatient, uh, mm-hmm. but actually I have to be. Uh, you know, I have to um, quell that and be a bit more patient and also play that to the team and go, right, actually, look, this, this is not the right time for this reason, right? You know, there's a sales mm-hmm. transaction coming up. There'll be new people coming in. We can impress upon them, you know, when we get the chance to pitch what we do and how we do it and why we need, you know, to, to do certain things in a different way, we'll get that opportunity um, when there's a, maybe a change of ownership or change in reporting line, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so now is not the right time. Other times it's like, no, no, now is the right time to go and influence those people, you know, with those sort of messages. Mm, yeah, actually, the, the slide there is strategic patience, um, because I, I think in general, I mean, I, I'm, I'm anyone who knows me uh, w- would never say that I'm a patient person, right? But especially over the past couple of years, uh, we realize the value of that. It, it, it takes a lot of effort to actually be patient, but I think a misconception is that patience or even humility, right? It's usually kind of interpreted as uh, as like. Um, a, a lack of offense, almost, right? It's like a, almost a p- p- passivity to it, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just humble, or I'm just patient, yeah, yeah. lack of action. But actually, if you're strategic about it, and your strategy in general is one that's offensive, which it should be, right? Um, then it actually becomes a virtue. That's how it becomes a virtue, right? Because a lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm just patient, and that, that 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 justifies like a lack of action or a lack of boldness, almost, or no, humility, you know. Hmm? Yeah, they're right. Because I think if you, because the same side, the opposite side is if you are constantly impatient, you're probably perceived as being just annoying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, do you know what? They're just annoying. They they constantly want uh, to spend loads of money. Uh, they constantly say everything is broken and everything is terrible. And in, in data, because it is a journey and not a destination, um, it won't be perfect. So trying to mm-hmm. get used to the fact that it says that won't be quite right, but it will be better in the future. We will go and sort that out. And, you know, mm-hmm. when, I, when I arrived at, at um, you know, we, we're, I was just sorting out with, um, you know, my um, data team today about having a having a, a sort of Christmas meal. And mm-hmm. I um, I said, well, one thing is, you know, let's talk about it at the meal. But I did in previous teams, we'd have a before the meal. We often I'd often put together a, a presentation on what we achieved last year. And actually, when you when you go through with people and say, look at that, we built this, we built that, we've done that. You know, I'm not sitting there going to ask for stakeholders to say whether that was great, you know, or, or terrible. But actually, what do I think as a senior leader? Look at the things that we've achieved, and look at the things we need to achieve next year. Um, and some of those things will be things that we did because we were asked to do it, and some of those things will be things that we proactively did. So again, it comes mm-hmm. back to this that you're helping the team find time and encouraging them to find time uh, to do things. So we used to have this concept in the data team called the garage way before it became trendy to have a garage where it was like skunk works of doing stuff. We had a garage, you know, back in the early 2000s and the data team were encouraged um, to, you know, be off grid to build some capability, data products as we call it today, um, or at least the bones of it or proof of concept, um, but not sit there and go, must timesheet, where do I record the two hours I spent looking at that? Oh God, I can't. Um, no, actually, do it. Come on. I'm not asking people to spend 100% of their time doing that type of stuff because we, we just didn't have the sort of, you know, team capabilities mm-hmm. to do that. 
Mm. It's it's really interesting. I'm just seeing because maybe I just uh, um, because I was watching a Mike Tyson documentary yesterday. So maybe that's why I'm thinking about this uh, analogy. But um, when I uh, uh, based on what you're saying, this whole strategy and tactical execution, it's kind of like how you win a boxing match and how you become a champion, right? Because you won't win a boxing match by just you know defending yourself. You need to land punches, right? Yeah, yeah. you're either going for a knockout or you want to win the match. And then basically, a good boxer would pace himself out, right? You know, not just uh, uh, get exhausted after two rounds, right? But you need to be on the offense. You need to land some jabs, right? And at the right time, you need to land that right hook. You know, when the opportunity presents itself. So even notch theory could be your jabs, right? You pacing yourself out would be just kind of uh, uh, paying attention to your stamina, and then at the right time you deliver the right message to the right people. You know when the opportunity yeah. opens up, right? So let's talk about that punch. You know because we're called the data storytellers, and uh, we believe that that punch that you want to deliver is the right story at the right time to the right person, right? So I'm also conscious of our time for these uh, last couple of minutes. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the role of storytelling from your perspective for a data leader? It's being, again, it's, it's something that's being thrown around. Storytelling has a nice buzz to it and all that. But but uh, what do you think um, is the most important aspect of storytelling from for a data leader, right? So the importance of stories and maybe your experience uh, delivering stories thinking about stories and just telling stories in the organization to to give your function and give data more importance and prominence and and uh, effect throughout the business yeah i mean i um i think of stories probably um there's a danger you think of this the the concept of storytelling is like a book and you're mm-hmm. going oh god so who's going to write a book and then go and, and then go and present a book that sounds like a three-month six-month data project mm-hmm. you know in some organizations you're not going to get three months six months so I think of it, I, to me, I think of it more as like chapters in a, in a story. So actually, we might be um, uh, doing some work and presenting and talking about a chapter. And, and the whole point of the chapters are you're also building a relationship with whoever it is. So you might be running multiple stories at any one, at any, any one time. You might be mm-hmm. in different, different parts of um, a book uh, on different books. So you could be in chapter one. You could be in chapter 13. And mm-hmm. and. The reason why it's quite an important point is that um, having been in the AA for 17 years and gone through five changes of ownership and leadership and strategy and, 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 that actually I would say um, we we sort of were um, telling stories and we were, uh, you know, I would say with a lot of stakeholders, we were quite through, quite way through the book. You know, it could be a hundred chapter book and we were on chapter 70. Great, fantastic. But as soon as every time there was a change, um, the book owner disappeared more often than not. Yeah, the CEO went, CMO went, everyone went. And we had to go and find where the book was. So when you, when that happens to you, so either because you move company or the company leadership changes or your stakeholders change, it's the reset moment also for your for your data team. And they have to get used to the fact that, you know what, got to start it all over again. And I was, um, I was talking to a guy yesterday, actually, completely not data-related, um, and he is a um, he's a general manager of a nursing home, um, mm. and it's a nursing home that my by my mother's in, um, and uh, he comes from a clinical background, so he's you know medically uh, medically trained. He's got into a position where he's general manager, it's quite an important position. He has to do the clinical side and the people side. Mm. Now he he's, he's in a nice um, uh, home that's part of a big brand. They just sold the business, and I was sort of trying to help him actually when I talked to him, and he asked me questions. 
are getting he's never he's never been involved in a company that's changed over and one of the things we were talking about yesterday was him saying you know i was familiar with my boss um i could she, you know she knew that if i went to her and, and, and i would ask him for this i really needed it um and you know he said it's a reset moment for me and i'm not sure i'm very happy and do i want to leave and i was like going look you haven't given the new people a chance you need to yeah i said it's unfortunate you've got to go and rebuild that relationship they've also got to build it with you but that this is this is i said welcome to corporate life i said to it <laughs> no that's that is a reality for a lot of us that the 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 you know the the i'm not so it's not a storyteller because you're the storyteller but the book owner can change mm-hmm. and before you realize it you're still t- going through the chapters but they're on a different book to you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm all as you see this is life in the nfl from we can't, to the we can't Premier League. Leave mike we can't leave mike tyson out this so mike tyson come on was an explosive <laughs> fighter that went in to knock him out in frankly within the first round i prefer maybe maybe the day to see maybe we should be more muhammad ali Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> yeah, when I was telling you that analogy, and I realized that I'm basing this on a documentary about Mike Tyson. Yeah, <laughs> just the videos of him demolishing people in 17 seconds, probably not, not the best. A Mike Tyson jab. Yeah, let's be honest. No one, yeah. no one Mike Tyson jab. Yeah, yeah he, he didn't get famous for his jabs. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. No, fantastic. Uh, uh, Graham, this was uh, an absolute pleasure. I genuinely learned a lot. I took like pages of notes here, you know, and probably I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I also want to be respectful of your time. So you've uh, given us almost an hour here. Uh, as a final, um, um, as a, uh, a final thought, so what would be your main recommendation for a data leader in 2021 heading into 2022? You know, based on the corporate landscape, uh, what would be, I don't know, the, 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 the number one thing, if you just tell them one thing to focus on, to keep as a priority, uh, what would that be? Um, I mean, one, I do one thing. Joe, sure, I think um, I think it'd be very easy to say all the usual stuff about, you know, stakeholder management, blah, blah, blah. Actually, do you know what? Your team is more important than anything because you are nothing without your team and i think there are um i don't say i don't say too many data leaders that don't respect their team i think the when the data leaders you know leave they leave behind a team when they arrive somewhere they inherit a team the team is important because you know without without a team you know it's like a football manager is nothing without a team mm-hmm. and you've got to get the best out, out of your team you know and i I've had, you know, been fortunate enough to work with some brilliant people. I've also been fortunate enough that some of those brilliant people I've persuaded to come with me and, and work with me in, in other organizations, for example. And, you know, I've probably got a long list of people uh, that, you know, the next time I move, I go, I want, you know, them, them and them. Um, mm-hmm. If the time is right for them, the time is and the, you know, the role is right, um, you know, I, I know that they will do a good job. Mm. It might not be a fair question because you will need to kind of reflect on your you know own success in that sense. But what do you think was the key for you that that they were so um, inspired by your leadership that they were willing to make those changes and follow you into the next organization? What what, what do you think were those key you know virtues or uh, attributes um, or your actions really that, that 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 made you compelling as a leader? And this can be also a finishing thought here. So um, so I had dinner with one of them last night, actually, mm-hmm. um, a lady called Nikki. Uh, I met Nikki as a graduate, recruited her. Um, she joined uh, my team, the AA. She did work for me initially. She worked for somebody else, and then she worked for me for a period. Uh, then um, when I left the AA, we went our separate ways, and then I persuaded her when the time was right, a role came up uh, to, to rejoin me. 
Um, and I think, you know, I think I'd hope you know, I speak for her. I think one of the things is that um, there's she sees that she can learn from me. But at the same time, one of the reasons I enjoy um, working with her is I learn from her. Mm. So I, you know, she would say to me, and she's not scared to say, um, Graham, you did that. It was terrible. Or actually, you know, you're going to, I'd send it, I was going to send out a broadcast to the team and I'd, I'd ask uh, a management team, which she was part of for their views. And she'd give me a, probably a different view to the others. The other would go, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's great. And she'd go, I don't think we should do it. I always think we should say that. And I suppose I saw that I was learning um, and maybe it's also this generation thing, you know, she's quite a bit younger than me. And therefore it helped me to, um, uh, you know, manage the team and lead the team at, I must say all levels, you know, the levels often is age related, you know, whether it's a junior analyst, a senior analyst, or, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, engineers, mm-hmm. whatever, actually it's helped me by having someone that can learn from me, but I can learn from them. Mm. Again, I think maybe that's the thing I look for is it, that, you know, they look for, and I look for is that somebody you can learn from. Mm-hmm. So again, the, the humility aspect is you know so important here because without that humility, you know you won't be able to be genuinely interested in someone who's more junior than you, knows less than you, right? In general, but then also this whole idea of the leadership element of courage, right? If they see you as a courageous leader, people are just drawn to that. People are attracted to that, and they are willing to follow you even to the next organization. Graham, thank you very much. This has been uh, wonderful. You know, I hope this w- wasn't the last time uh, uh, that no, we thank did you. this. Yes, absolutely. And we hope to see you in the next show. Yep. Thank you very much.